Good morning to you all. Since Luke's not here, I'm going to change the order of service just a little bit. Is that? Before we read Ephesians chapter 4, I just want to ask you a question. And that's uh, to do with the new year, really. It's an interesting time, isn't it? A time when we look back and we think about what has happened over these past 12 months and we look forward to the 12 months ahead. And whenever we do that, we want to change something normally. We want to improve something. We want to grow or build something. Um, And why is that? Why do we always want to grow or change or improve? And what do you want to change? What do you want to improve? What do you want to build or grow this year? I could ask you what your New Year resolution uh, is. And that's often how we express them in New Year resolutions. This year, I'm going to go to the gym. This year, I'm going to eat differently. It's really about self-improvement when we think about New Year resolutions. And it's interesting when we think about that, when we think about growing and changing and building, we also look at certain resources. We look at the gym, or we look at the grocery store. We go to an organic food shop instead of... Uh, our normal grocery store. So why is that? Why in our hearts do we always want to change? Do we always want to grow? Do we always want to improve? Well, I would suggest that the Lord has written into our spiritual DNA that desire, that desire to build, that desire to grow, and that desire to change, that desire for something better, for newness and for growth. And maybe that's why God's um, well, that's why the self-improvement industry is so successful. Did you know it's, a, it's an $11 billion industry, I think, in the USA? And different market segments, there's holistic institutes, there are books, there's infomercials, motivational speakers, there are websites, weight loss programs, athletic trainers, personal coaches. It's a growing, a booming area. It's personal coaches, people wanting to improve and em- employing a coach. And it's recession-proof, everyone says. Because even when there's a recession, people want to do that even more. So what a great industry to be in is is self-improvement. So what is it? Usually it's earthly desires, isn't it, that we're looking for. And yet, God has written within us, our spiritual DNA, a desire for heavenly, heavenward growth and Christ-like growth. In the Bible, that's called sanctification. And some people think that's a a, a terrible word, a word that's sort of almost unchangeable because they think of things like holiness. And they think about, how can I ever be holy? That's so unreachable for me. But holiness is really a remarkable thing because if you look in the Bible, holiness is much, much more. It's not ethereal. It's actually about becoming a wiser person. It's about becoming a more loving person. It certainly is about change and it's about growth. And it doesn't just happen once a year. God asks us to change every single day, to grow every single day into Christ-likeness. And it's not as though we make a a New Year resolution and by the second or third week, that's gone away. We're to do that every single day. And in today's passage, in Ephesians chapter 4, I want to tell you a little bit about how that growth 
takes place. The motivation for that growth, the means for that growth, the manner for the growth, the methods of growth, and the model for growth. Because it's been an eternal call in our lives, sanctification and growth. And it was true for the Ephesian church, just as it is for us now. So let me take you back to Ephesus. And we'll start with chapter 4. We've already had a couple of passages read from Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. And Ephesians is an amazing book. People call it a book of great riches, of God's riches. And the first three chapters tell us all of the resources that God has given us for growth and for change. And then from chapter 4 onwards, which is where we're going to mainly spend our time in chapter 4, he's going to tell us the practical elements of the great treasure house that he's provided for us. Now we're reading a letter and it's not written to us and we're going to join in the middle of the letter and it's a letter that doesn't talk about New Year resolutions, it talks about a revolution, a change that you wouldn't even think about. And in those days, this was the early church, this was a church plant, one of the church plants in Asia Minor and as Paul went on his journeys and this book is written by Paul, He's talking about the new church. And there's many themes throughout the Bible that describe what God's church is like. His bride, his wife, a family, a flock, a vineyard. But in here, Paul uses the analogy of God's body. And that's a great one to think about growth and a great one to think about newness. And what was revealed in Ephesians was, in chapter 3, it's spoken of as this great mystery. The church was about the Jews and the Gentiles coming together. So Israel has changed in many ways. It's not just, God's people are not now just a nation, but actually those who have been circumcised of hearts, those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and in his death and in his resurrection. And we now have a new church. But they're in trouble in Ephesus, because there are all of these false teachers coming in. Uh, in Ephesus, there's the Temple to Diana. It's a great worship center, a great trade center. It's where the diaspora of the Romans, that's where they worship the emperor in Ephesus. They came to worship the emperor uh, in Ephesus. So there was a lot of things that were challenges and impediments in some way to the growth and the establishment of the church, hence the book of Ephesians. So Paul wrote this to the people in Ephesus, but it was a circular letter that was, go to many other, that was going to be circulated to many other churches as well. And we want to see in this that newness and growth is what God desires for us, and he's written that into us. But it's not about newness and growth of ourselves only. It's not about a new resolution of how we'll be better. It's about the growth of his body, of his church, and of course, that requires our own growth for that to take place. So we're going to learn that the maturation of his body, and it's called in here the manhood of Christ, amazingly, is a desire which is written in our hearts. And the church matures as we mature. And it's the direction which he has prepared in advance for all of us to do. So let's turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 
and that's on page 837 in the Pew Bible. And I'm just going to read a little bit as a time, and we're going to address each section as we go through it. Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace, but grace was given to each one to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And if we just skip down, if you see verse 13, have a look at verse 13. It says that we are going to grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that should be our new, the New Year revolution, newness and growth into the stature, the fullness of Christ. It was true for the Ephesians, and it was true for us. But different from our own New Year resolutions, it's not just based on our efforts or a personal coach. It's based on all of the riches and spiritual blessings that have been described in the first three chapters of Ephesians. In chapter 1, Paul talks about our spiritual position in Christ. We have a new life, and that we're dead to sin, and we're alive. That we've been raised, and we've been seated on a throne. He talks about the church being these Jews and Gentiles, so the most diverse group of people. People who you would never think could sit in one place and worship together. And yet, that's what's described in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11 to 22. And then... Throughout these first three chapters, they're punctuated by Paul's prayers. Each time Paul prays because he knows that this growth, this newness can never be achieved just by human effort. So he asks God to pray uh, all the time. Uh, he, asks, he asks God to, to equip the people to grow in the direction that he wants them to. And then from chapter 4 on, he says, here now are your responsibilities. Christ has done this. Now, what are you going to do? How are you going to grow in newness? How are you going to live as Christ in the church? Because it's an amazing calling for us together to look like Christ, for us to be his body, for people to look at us and say, there is Jesus Christ. And that was easy when he was walking on the earth. Even then they rejected him. But now all that Christ is, that's what we are meant to look like. Is that going to happen quickly? That needs daily growth and daily newness. So the motivation is, is there in the first few verses. Paul says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, and I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Now, Paul, in the middle of this letter, says, I'm a prisoner. Now, why on earth would he say that? Well, that is actually one of their great motivations. He's saying, if I am here in chains and I can grow in newness, then surely you, in your freedom, can also grow in your newness. He says your walk must reflect your call. So for him, his walk was in prison. Imagine what that would be like to live out, to be part of Christ's body in a prison population with the thieves and the murderers and the adulterers, all of those that are placed in. But Paul says, I am a prisoner 
And I urge you to walk in the manner that I am walking, despite all of those difficulties. And the newness and growth, he says, is a worthy walk. And the growth is actually in unity. He speaks about, we want you to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And isn't that one of the hardest things to do, is to be unified? But it's this picture of the body. The body cannot be disunified. For it to be work, for it to work, it has to grow every part together. And every part has to work together. And the greatest impediment to the church itself, to the growth of the church and the maturity of the church, is probably its brokenness and probably disunity. I know of two large churches in town that are suffering church splits at the moment. And these are churches that are solid in the truth. They're partners in the gospel. And I was talking to one man who's an elder at one of the church, and he said he's had 30 years of ministry and the past nine months trying to sort out this disunity, this fragmentation that's taken place, is the hardest thing he has done in active Christian ministry. Disunity is, impairs, impedes growth, and impedes maturity. So he, spe- he speaks about what we need for unity. He says we need humility, and that's inward. And an, an, an idea that the other person is more important than us. He says we need gentleness, and that's the garden really in which patience grows. If you're to be patient with one another, if we're to look around and think about how do we be patient with one another, we have to think about our, uh, that in gentleness. Patience is about bearing with one another. It's about pointing, looking at each person. Even when we fail, even when we sin, and we're going to sin, it's about being patient with one another, not seeking the harm of another, judging only with the idea to restore, not judging with the idea of condemning. This is the meekness towards the sin of another. And all of these things, he says, we're to do this bearing with another in love. So it's not just putting up with one another, it's actually under the umbrella of loving one another as well. Now, if you hear all of those things, it'll probably remind you of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And he says we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is an active process. We should be looking to be unified with one another all the time. It's the unity of the Spirit. So it's by his Spirit that we're actually joined together. So what we're we're not trying to come up with some kind of human relationship. It's actually a bond that we have with one another that's created by the Spirit. It's on the basis of Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3. All of that Christ has done, all of the resources that we need, we have to be united. The Holy Spirit is really the glue that holds us together. And Paul here calls it, it's a bond of peace. That means a peace with God and a peace with each other. It's a peaceable love. 
Now, don't forget, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles in the church in Ephesus. There wasn't a, gr a more diverse, a, a greater group at enmity than the Jews and the Gentiles. So they had to overcome some major barriers to live in this bond of peace. But isn't that true for us? We should look around and whoever, whatever the differences of those around us, we're to be an organism that's animated in love by the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see it's in contrast to the strife that comes later on. He's going to talk about the Gentiles and Jews being at strife and grieving the Holy Spirit later on in this passage. So our newness and growth should be rooted in peaceable love. It should be animated by the Holy Spirit and directed towards unity in the body. So the motivation for our growth is actually unity. Our personal growth, we should be looking at ways that we can grow this year that actually enhances our growth together. We should look at new ways of being at peace with God. We should look at the great riches that have been poured out in Christ in Ephesians chapter 1, in Ephesians chapter 2, in Ephesians chapter 3. I read a story this week about a couple that were found uh, in New Mexico that had starved to death, and in their cupboard was $40,000 in bags. They starved to death and didn't buy food, and they had all of the resources that they needed to buy food in their cupboard. And isn't that true with us very often? We don't grow, we don't maintain the bond of peace because we don't appropriate all the riches that we have in Christ. The great storehouse of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3, of Christ's forgiveness, of his choosing of us, of the heavenly blessings that he's chosen for us to maintain the unity of peace. We're meant to be one at God, but one with our brothers and sisters. And Paul goes on to uh, expound on that a little bit. He says, there's one body and one spirit in verse 4, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your core, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and all in all. He, in seven times, he uses one. And he says there's only one body, there's only one church. You can go and join another one down the road, but it's the same church. You can go to a different denomination. If it's a gospel preaching church, it's the same church. As those local congregations in town are broken, we are broken. As they are hurting, we are hurting as well. You see, the means of salvation for all gospel preaching churches is the same. The hope is the same. One Lord. In the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. But now in the New Testament, that's Christ. And through faith, his sacrifice has been efficient to restore us into a relationship with God our Father. So we see the Trinity mentioned in this little passage. One Spirit, we see one Lord and one God and Father of all. You see, there's only one path, there's only one goal, there's only one house, there's only one family, there's only one home to which we've been called. That's the church. There's only one place that we're to grow together in unity. Even in our families, we're to bring our families here and to grow as families in this place. So we don't join churches, we are the church. And how does that happen? Well, that happens because of the gift that Christ has given us. 
And we think of many gifts, but Ephesians here speaks actually just about one gift. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, it does mean that, but that, it, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended from above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So it's sort of this is an interesting little passage that talks about Jesus descending and his ascending and descending. And commentators disagree on what it means. Some people say he went into hell to proclaim to the captives what uh, took place. But really, most people agree that this speaks about his incarnation. And it, he, Paul uses a, a quote from Psalm 68, which is a messianic psalm. And if you read that, it speaks about um, heaven itself and that the captives bring gifts to the Messiah. But in this psalm, Paul twists it around and says, the Messiah gives gifts to the captives, which is us. So this heavenly, it's a picture of a heavenly king bestowing gifts individually, but expansively according to his will and his purpose. And each gift has its own role to play in completing the unity and growth of the church. So we all receive a gift. Now, that gift is a combination of all different gifts, as described in other passages in Scripture. But the gift is what you've received. The combination of everything that God's given you is your gift from Christ. That might be teaching, it might be serving, but it's unique to you. No one has received that combination of gifts that you have received. You have a special place in Christ's church. You and your growth in the use of your gifts has a special place in the growth of this church. And your gifts are a means to which we can achieve unity. So when you refuse to occupy the place assigned to you in your church, you're actually refusing to belong to it at all. Your temperament, your mental powers, your talents, your inclinations, they're the things that God is going to refine and direct and move for his kingdom and for the good of others. You're part of the unity of all souls, and you're part of the unity of God's greater church. And the needs and means and resources for newness and growth are slightly different for each believer. They're all in Christ, but you're called to appropriate them in your way, to accept with thankfulness what he has given and called you to do for the unity of this body and the greater church the living body of the risen and ascended Christ. So that speaks about um, the means by which it takes place. Well, what about the manner? How how does he give us all of these gifts? And what's it look like sort of on a daily basis? Well, it says in verse 11 to 14, it says, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So as you're part of this church, 
God has given us shepherds and teachers. He's given us Scott and Dave and Luke and one another. Why? To help build this church into mature manhood. Why? To help build God's church into mature manhood. So as these individuals are to help us, you and me, grow. Why? So that Christ's body grows to mature manhood. So the church is an organization, but it's an organism of growth that's taking place all the time. Again, he said he gave their great gifts to us. Dave and Scott and Luke are wonderful gifts to us that we should be thankful for. But it reminds us that Christ, the author and designer of All Souls Church, just as he is of his church all around the world. And these men have been chosen and especially endowed by the Lord to help us grow in unity and in manhood. So each of them have different roles and there's different outcomes. But look at what they're meant to do. They are meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So they're meant to help us grow. We have all the resources we need to grow. We have all the resources that we need for newness. Should we go to the gym? Should we get a personal coach? Well, those things are for us. But here he said, really, your personal growth is about the manhood of the church, the completeness of the church, Christ's body becoming educated and completed to look like Christ. The fullness from him comes by his indwelling and his empowerment of us, his people. So isn't that strange? We become Christ, but it's him that indwells and empowers us to become like Christ as well. And it's, it's, an, it's a remarkable contrast. We have this mature manhood, the body of Christ, and what's the contrast? He says, otherwise you're like children who are being tossed around. It's really an age of children. It's a child, it's somebody who looks like an adult in this description, but is really a child, a child in maturity. You see, the Gentiles in Ephesus were attacked by false teachers. And the church in the US and in the UK and around the world is being attacked by false teachers. Here he describes it being cunningness and craftiness, that we shouldn't we, we want to no longer be like children that are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around. The idea is that children are so easily influenced by their surroundings, aren't they? Uh, by the views and opinions of those around us, by the latest fads. He's using sort of nautical language, having these children in charge of a massive ship on the waves and it's being tossed around. Why? Because it's the environment that's determining which way they're going rather than the, the, the people themselves, rather than having a wise captain who understands how the sea works and how the ship works, that's the mature manhood. These children are being tossed around. So we're not to be like children. We're meant to be growing in manhood. We're meant to be based, and that's meant to be on the truth. And you'll see that a little bit later on. It's the truth that grows us into this manhood. So that we recognize false doctrine, we recognize falsehood. And in verse 15, it says, speak the truth in love. We are to grow in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So he talks about the truth in love, which is held in stark contrast to those, those deceitful doctrines. We're built up by the truth, as that last hymn spoke about. Let us hear your word, and that is what's going to shape and fashion us. We either hear the truth from the pulpit, but we also hear the truth from one another. We're to talk about it over lunch. We're to talk about it over coffee. We're to encourage each other in truth, but in love, as opposed to these deceitful doctrines which so easily cause us to be tossed around. And this building, this growth, this church that he's speaking about is one that has stability and it has direction. It's a whole body that's joined and held together. It's equipped so that each part is working properly. Now, so for the engineers amongst us, I know there's at least one, but there's several. That's a great thing. Engineers love stability and they love direction. They love form and structure. And that's what truth brings. It brings stability and direction. But it says, listen, to grow up in every way. Not to grow up in one way, but to grow up in every way. How do we how can we be the fullness of Christ? For each person to grow in the way that Christ leads them and uses their gifts into his fullness, his infinite, eternal, unchanging fullness. What a huge call that is, is for us to look like Christ. And we can't do it individually. We have to do it together because each one of us cannot represent all of his fullness his power, his perfection, his goodness, his glory, his wisdom, his justice and truth. How do we do that? We can only do it together. So we grow into him. He's not only the source of this growth, he's also the goal of this growth as well. He joins and he holds us together. His powerful and preserving grace. He equips us and we can only be mature when, when all the parts are working correctly. It's almost like it becomes this self-propelling or self-catalytic cascade. He says, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It almost becomes this sort of self-fulfilling. Once you start, you just almost can't keep building and building. It's a great picture, almost like a crystal that's sort of adding to itself. Others come in and see our unity and see our love and want to be part of that. So more crystals form this beautiful crystal, the fullness of Christ. It's like the mature vine. The growth of the vine is directional and stable. The branches are attached to the vine, as Jesus spoke about, anchored and supported and joined and nourished and strengthened in their function by the vine himself, who is Christ. The nourishing sap for that growth, that nourishing sap for that stability is his word, is the truth spoken in love, the truth of who he is, the truth of his gospel, the truth of heaven, the truth of hell, the truth of our sinfulness, the truth of our riches in Christ, the truth that reveals his person, his power, his promises, his presence, that builds up the stability and the direction of the church in love. You see, error is never harmless. Error is never harmless. Error always brings instability and error always brings uncertainty. If we believe error, if you believe error, if I believe error, it's going to create instability in your life. 
It's going to be, create uncertainty. If our children buy into error, it's going to create uncertainty and instability in their life. Newness and growth is rooted in loving truth. That's why it's so wonderful to be part of this great church in which we read scripture all the way throughout the services. Every meeting you go to, whether it's the men's study or the women's study, is rooted in the truth. Why is that? Because that's what brings directionality. That's what brings stability. That's what brings unity together. Just in the last few minutes, I just want to talk about the method, the method of this growth. What's your role as we think about the revolution in the new year? And this next, chat, this next section just speaks about, in very, very practical ways, a method by which we can grow. And some people call it the putting off and the putting on. And it really speaks about repentance. That if growth is to be a daily process in our life, if newness is to be a daily process in our life, which God is calling us to be in sanctification, then this new life from verse 17 on is what it looks like. Paul explains this process by providing a contrast or a distinction between the unsaved, who he calls the Gentiles, and don't forget now the Gentiles are part of the church, and the saved, and he calls those learned in Christ. And he, he speaks about the source and fountainhead of sin, and he says it's the heart. He talks about it being the heart. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And in Scripture, that's not brain. Your mind is your heart. It's the root of your thoughts. It's the root of your decisions. It's the root of your affections, your mind. Even if you didn't have a body, you'd still have a mind. That time, after you die, when your body, you're waiting for a resurrection, you're still going to be able to think. You're still going to be able to feel. You're still going to be able to make decisions. You still have a will. So that is the heart or the mind in Scripture. In Mark 7, he describes it like this. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, and pride. Jesus says, your sin doesn't come from your hands or your legs. It's not the action of sin. It comes from your heart or your mind, from your inner man, the deepest part of you. And that's where God's word works. That's where the truth works. For the word of God is living and active, it says in Hebrew, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, of the mind. So that's our worship center. So when he talks about, he says, we should no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. So he talks about heart issues that underline the immorality. And later on he goes, they, they, they then choose, they've given them, they become callous and they've given themselves to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So he, he describes this process. It sounds a lot like Romans 1. It's a reverse growth. Instead of growing, they're shrinking away. They have a futility of, of mind. They have a darkened understanding. So now they're not thinking clearly. They, um, they're making the wrong decisions. They're alienated from God, it says. And then their heart becomes hard. And from that hardness, that's not the end, it becomes callous. You ever had a callous? 
when you have a callus on your knee or a callus on your elbow, it starts off just being a little bit hard, but then it becomes callous and all of the feeling goes away. We have that in all of our animals as well. And you can't do anything because it's, it's hard to reverse once it's become calloused. It's this progressive pathology. Futility in mind, darkened understanding, alienated from God, hardness of heart, and then callousness. That biblical, that's a biblical picture of what happens when we choose to sin. When we reject Christ, we reject his forgiveness. And the end point of that is not caring. They give themselves up to sensuality, to greed, to every kind of impurity. They don't care what they do anymore. They just say, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'll do whatever I want to do, whatever gives me pleasure, whatever I want to do. And it's self-reprobation. It's self-judgment. They've given themselves up to doing that. In Romans 1, it says God gives them up to all of this impurity. But then he describes the believer. He says, but that is not the way that you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him, that you were taught as the truth in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So he says you cannot live this way that you did before. The difference is you learned Christ. That means you learned who he was. You learned what he did. You learned chapters one, two, and three. You've appropriated all the riches that we have in Christ's sacrifice, in his resurrection, is his ascension. The whole truth, it says. And because you know something different, you're to put off the old man and put on the new. It's almost a picture of clothing, of, of taking off our sin and putting on a new way of life. Taking off and it's not just taking off, it is stripping it off and throwing it away. It's a forceful word that's used here. But it comes from a renewed thinking, a renewed understanding. We don't do it like a New Year resolution just to be better people. We do it because of a greater truth and because we already have a new heart. Christ has born that inner man again into a new birth. You have all the resources that you need for growth and for godliness. You see, the old life is self-centered and futile. The new is Christ-centered and purposeful. The old life is ignorant of God's truth. The new knows and understands God's truth. The old is spiritually and morally calloused and shameless, and the new is sensitive to sin of every sort. The old is depraved in its thinking, and the new is renewed in its thinking. So what area of your walk are you experiencing a hardness of heart? Where have you let go to sin? Where have you let sin rule your lives and given yourself over, usually to our feelings and to our thoughts? How is this stopping you grow in your kingdom? And how is it stopping the church grow? Because your putting off and your putting on is an important element, a practical element of how we grow. It's a renewed mind that comes from his word. It's confession of our sins. It's repenting. It's turning away. It's feeling remorse, but turning away and turning towards Christ and appropriating all that he's given us. So in what area of your life are there lies? Where is there a temptation or a propensity to, to mislead, to deceive one another? We're meant to be based in truth. In what area of your life do you need newness and growth? And what truths can you put on 
this new year. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. We thank you for the call that you have, that you have given to our lives, that we are no longer to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of our minds, but we're to walk in the truth, knowing Christ and loving Christ and growing in Christ. Father, we thank you that we're part of this church, not just all souls, but of your uh, invisible church, of the church that uh, is in the hearts of your people, the church that is uh, global, the church of those that have died, those martyrs who have gone before, the church of those who will come again. Lord, we know that we're part of an eternal kingdom, and we here at All Souls want to be part of that. We want to represent your fullness, and we know that that won't happen if each of us, Lord, isn't walking circumspectly, isn't walking according to the manner that's worthy of what you have called. We pray for each of us that you give us humility and gentleness and patience. Help us bear with one another in love. Help us maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may this be for your growth, the growth of your church and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name.